he opened a door, which happened to be just a storage cupboard, pulled me inside and locked the door. And I was absolutely petrified. I thought, uh-oh, this is bad. This is not good. Hi, I'm Megan McChesney and this is The Lip. The Lip is a podcast of unforgettable true stories and today's tale is epic in the truest sense of the word. It begins on an Italian cruise ship in 1966 and continues right through to today. It involves an insane love affair, a family tragedy and a promise an 11-year-old girl made to a woman she didn't know from a bar of soap Just a word before we get started, this story, Nadia's Promise, it starts off in a very light-hearted place, but it becomes very distressing indeed. Here's Liz. When I was 16, my brother, who was only 14, was invited on a schoolboy cruise around the South Pacific. And naturally, being the older sibling, I complained bitterly that that was totally unfair and I had never been anywhere and why was he going and I had never been to anywhere and that's not fair. So um, my parents looked around and they had just come into some money from um, some dead relative. And so they said, um, oh, look, there's actually a cruise leaving the same day on um, the Italian cruise ship, the Flavia, and it's coming back the same day too. So my brother went. We actually saw him off in the morning, and it was a pretty grotty old ship. It was an old freighter, I think, that had been converted into a a schoolboy cruise ship. And just as we were waving him off, there was this beautiful white cruise liner that came round the corner and went just into sight, caught in the sunlight, glowing white. And I said, is that our ship? And my dad said, yeah, I think it is. My brother said, I wish I was going with you. <laughs> but um, he wasn't. He was on his ship and we were on ours. So um, that was the start of it. And I had no idea when I set foot on that ship what was going to happen. And we'd gone through about... 10 days of the cruise and we got to Fiji. Coming into Latoka, my parents were still down in the cabin getting changed and I went up on deck alone. It was like a walking into an oven because the ship was air conditioned and then you opened the doors and there was this blast of hot air and there was nobody else on that particular deck at all except for a man I'd never seen before, a young man um, in white pants and a sort of mustard-coloured shirt and white moccasins, just looking at band that was playing on the wharf as the ship was coming into port. And seeing as he was there and he was (laughs) good-looking, I sidled up to him and said hello. I said, hmm, they're good, aren't they? Talking about the band on the wharf. And he said, yes, good, good. And he started talking to me. And when I realised his English was not so good, I thought, hmm, maybe he's a crew member, but he wasn't in uniform, so I wasn't sure. And then he said um, something that a lot of crew members had said to me, will you come ashore for me? Meaning, will you come ashore with me? And I said, oh, oh, no, no, I can't. I'm with my parents. (laughs) 
I, I actually probably wouldn't have dared go ashore as a 16-year-old with a foreign guy. But um, anyway, he followed me round for the rest of the day. I could see him at a distance. Wherever we were, he was 100 paces behind. We were just shopping, just going around the shops. He kept on beckoning to me to stop. And finally I got the opportunity to just stand outside a shop while Dad went in to look at yet more cameras and so on. Mum and Dad both went in. I stayed outside and he rushed up to me, pressed a piece of folded paper into my hand and gave me a very dramatic kiss and... <laughs> Uh, you know, the kind that you see in the movies, especially older movies, film star type kiss. And I wasn't expecting that and didn't know how to react. And all the little kids formed a circle around us and clapped. <laughs> um, but I was actually in fear and dread that my parents were going to walk out any minute and see me being kissed by this strange person. Um, so he took off. And mum and dad came out and I could feel this very thin paper in my hand it felt like money it was that that thin i thought what has he given me but of course i was with them i couldn't open it i had it clenched in my hand it was quite some time later that i actually managed to find out what it was it wasn't money it was just a little note asking to meet me on the tailmina deck later in the day <laughs> once the ship was leaving so i spent the rest of the day deliberating about whether i should do that or not <laughs> To me, he looked like young Sean Connery. I was totally infatuated as a 16-year-old with Sean Connery as James Bond, so this was my James Bond. I had met him, and yeah, it was, I, w I was attracted to him. But if, if I meet him on the Taumina deck, what does he want? What is he going to do? What is he going to say? Am I going to be able to handle this? Is it dangerous? You know, I, I actually was quite scared. I did go. Curiosity was getting the better of me. You can get quite lost in the bowels of a ship, and um, I wasn't even sure if I was in the right place, but I, I was. Um, he was there waiting for me at the bottom of the stairs. That what gave me the hugest shock was that he then um, opened a door next to us, which happened to be just a storage cupboard, pulled me inside and locked the door. It was quite a deep kind of broom cupboard. Um, it had a light on in it, and I was absolutely petrified. I thought, uh-oh. This is bad. This is not good. He started kissing me. He kissed me very passionately. And I began to panic. I said, said no, 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 you know, um, don't, don't even think about that because I don't know you that well yet. <laughs> and he said, look, I'm not a gorilla. I'm not going to do anything bad to you. I just wanted to be alone with you. And I have a gift for you. And he gave me a bottle of Balenciaga Ladis. That is a very expensive French perfume. And I thought, well, that's nice. I knew what it was because my mum had some. Um, but I thought, how am I going to explain that to my parents? His name was Domenico, Mimo for short, and he worked in the engine room of the ship. I had no idea how old he was, and I don't think he was sure how old I was. And then we ultimately both lied about our age. I said I was 17, he said he was 27. He was 28. And I was 16. 
When they met, there were only four days left of the cruise. They rendezvoused secretly a few more times. And as for that Balenciaga Ladis... My mum did find it. Well, she found it mostly because I opened it, of course, and used it, <laughs> and then she could smell it. So um, she said, where did you get that? And I said, it was given to me. Oh, who gave it to you? Oh, one of the guys on the ship. <laughs> I didn't say it was a crew member. Oh, who is this? You got, he's got an admirer. And I said, yeah, I think he's an admirer. I didn't ever let them know at that point in time who it was. They didn't meet him. He was my secret for those few days. My parents trusted me. I mean, I was a Queen's guide. I should have been trustworthy. <laughs> but um, I was actually a little more daring than they expected me to be, I think. And um, just before the cruise finished, I gave him my address so he could write to me. He gave me a photograph of himself and told me that he wanted a photo of me, which I said I'd send him. When I got back to school, it was the talk of the whole school that Liz had a, an Italian lover. They said an Italian lover. I hadn't actually got quite that far with him, but <laughs> they were all green with envy. And the worst thing for me was that it was my UE year and it was a complete and utter distraction. I did no further serious study for the rest of the year. I failed by seven marks. A 16-year-old is in love with love. So I was first and foremost in love with love, and then I was in love with a gorgeous man that I actually knew very little about. From the next port, I got a postcard. That was from Australia. I got a postcard, an Alsatian with a koala on its back. And it just said, I need you, I want you, I love you. Tenderly, Domenico. Yes, who is Domenico? Oh, he's actually one of the crew. <laughs> Was he the guy that gave you the Balenciaga desk? Yes. I think they weren't too perturbed at that stage because, of course, the cruise ship had left. They thought, oh, I think she'll get over it. But I received for the next two years these beautifully crafted letters in pretty good English and in beautiful copper plate writing. There was at least one a month. They were very, very romantic, telling me how much he loved me, the one that got me puzzled was um, when I look at the sky, I think of your eyes. Now, my eyes are not blue. My eyes are hazel. I thought, when did you ever see a hazel sky? Have you forgotten what colour my eyes are? <laughs> uh, you know, there's all kind of poetical things. How he really wanted to marry me and, um, you know, could he marry me next time he comes to port and... And I would write back to him very romantically just saying how I missed him and no, I can't marry you yet, I'm still at school. <laughs> I would, of course, show all my friends and all my friends would pretty much swoon and say, oh, you're so lucky, oh, he's so romantic. My parents tried to dissuade me from any idea of marriage. I said, if you don't let me marry him, I'll elope. That, by that stage I was 18 and getting quite stroppy. And I used all kinds of emotional blackmail to try and make them see things my way. And I said, oh, this is going to make me really happy. And if you don't let me do this, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. Then they organized a meeting one time when he was in Auckland. 
they took him to meet Marcella, the very proper Roman lady. And she talked to him in Italian. And then afterwards, my parents obviously asked her for feedback. And the only feedback they got from her was, oh, he's a country boy. She, she said, oh, obviously, he's really in love with your daughter and he would take care of her. And my parents at that point started considering the possibility and that I could marry him. And my mum got a bit carried away with being mother of the bride and, and organising a wedding. Um, so it eventually happened. We got married and it was only on the honeymoon on Pakatu Island when I was alone with him for the first time, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I'm married to somebody I really don't even know. And I realised at that point that I hadn't spent more than 24 hours in his company. And it was actually a little bit scary. But I was still absolutely crazy in love with him. Two weeks after marrying him, we went back to Italy and I remember the saddest thing was my dad's face. When he was on the on the wharf waving goodbye. I've never seen him look so sad. We were halfway back to Italy on the ship and he introduced me to a very charming, handsome young guy with curly brown hair and grey eyes, named Jezueldo. This is Jezueldo, says Nemo with a big smile. He wrote the letters. I said, what do you mean, he wrote the letters? All those letters you got, he wrote the letters. Uh, you mean he translated the letters for you? No, he wrote the letters. Ah, uh, so... You told him what to write, and then he wrote it. No, he wrote the letters. I said, what do you mean he wrote the letters? Well, I used to give him your letter and say, here's 20 bucks, answer it. I was absolutely gobsmacked. I didn't speak to Mimo for the rest of the day. Because I was in love with the writer of the letters. It was the first time I'd been angry with him. I was really angry, because it was deception. He had deceived me, and so had Jezueldo, actually. And I kind of wondered what else was coming, and then, lo and behold, before we got to Genoa, he um, introduced me to another crew member and his very pregnant wife, and he said, of course, um, you're going to be living with her in New York. I said, what? I said, oh, well, the... Uh, Ship's going back to Italy, and I'll introduce you to my relatives. And then the ship has been sold to another company, and they're going to do cruises around the Caribbean. And I'm staying with the ship, so you're going to be based in New York, and you got, we'll get you a, a, an apartment, and uh, we'll see you every two weeks. I said, what? This is not what I signed up for. I signed up to go to Italy. I thought, put me in an apartment with a girl who's going to give birth. And she doesn't speak English. I can't speak Italian. And I'm going to see my husband, my new husband that I'm in love with, once every two weeks. No, thank you. 
when I'd made enough of a performance and threatening to go home, he eventually realised he was going to lose me. So he said, well, what am I going to do? Because, of course, his life had been working on ships. And I hadn't actually, to be honest, thought that through. They worked things out. Mimo decided to leave the ship and he got a job in his hometown of Nuviano, close to many of his brothers and sisters. Mimo woke me up the morning we were coming into Genoa. Six o'clock in the morning, he said, come on, get out of bed, we can see Italy. And I said, we can see Italy. It was mid-November and it was cold on the deck of the ship and the ship was actually moored, was waiting for a berth. You could see the lights of the city. All the streets were decorated with Christmas lights and you could see them from the distance, big stars over the streets and so on. And just the mistiness of the country and I was just so, so excited. Some of his family had come down to meet us. They treated me immediately like a little sister. The youngest sister-in-law, Carmela, helped me the most. She understood that I didn't understand very much. So she spoke very slowly. Nerviano is on the northwest edge of Milan. It's about half an hour's drive from the centre of Milan. We got a one-bedroom apartment four storeys high and my youngest brother-in-law worked in the bakery down below. When it comes to hanging your washing out over a, a line that's got a four-storey drop, I used to sort of crouch down and reach out and gingerly peg things on the line. I think I dropped a wet pillowcase on somebody's head once, but <laughs> I got used to that. I didn't want to get pregnant immediately. I wanted to get used to being a wife before I got, became a mother. And when Mimo found out that I was taking the pill, he said I was killing his babies and it wasn't on. But I said, no, I will have a baby when I'm ready. And so it was a couple of years. I was nine months pregnant on my 21st birthday. I went into labour in the middle of the night and at two o'clock in the morning I got Mimo to take me into hospital. They said, well, yeah, she's, you know, not dilated yet, but she's obviously in labour, so leave her here, we'll take care of her. And he said, well, I'm going to go home and go back to sleep if that's all right by you. My brother-in-law, Gregorio, he was there along with the two sisters-in-law that had come down to meet me in Genoa. And they were all waiting in the um, room that you wait in, waiting for a woman to give birth. And I went through the delivery by myself. And I was so relieved to see that child. And I can remember seeing him and thinking, oh, he's dead, he's grey and purple all over. But they smacked him on the bottom and he started crying and he turned a normal pink colour and I, was, I, I can remember being so hugely relieved. But then they rushed out and told my brother-in-law Gregorio that he had a son and he said, oh, it's not mine, which of course <laughs> made me look really bad. Baby David was a strapping 4.3 kilos or nine and a half pounds. I was absolutely over the moon. It was the most exciting thing. And I couldn't imagine how, really, how my body could have produced something as perfect as that. He was really cute. By then, Liz had a number of students she taught English to and was so fluent in Italian, many locals had no idea she wasn't from Milan. Everyone who knew her called her Lisa, 
But despite all of that, she, Mimo and baby David moved back to New Zealand soon after. I wanted to raise my kids in New Zealand. Because though I love Italy and absolutely adore the Italian people, Milan is not a place to raise kids. I didn't want to raise my kids with only a concrete courtyard to play in. I wanted my kids to play on grass and climb trees and play on the beach. Susanna, the next child, was born in New Zealand. Dave was three when she was born. By then, however, the marriage was in trouble. It wasn't the age difference so much as the cultural difference. I had grown up with a dad who washed the dishes and put the rubbish out. He did not wash dishes. He did not put the rubbish out. That was my job. Besides which, I was to iron his socks. I said, nobody irons socks. Yes, my sisters do. My mother did. I said, no, nobody irons socks. So finally I asked the sisters in his presence, do you iron socks? And no, they laughed. I was expected to be this, the good little housewife who did his bidding and stayed at home and did housework. Whereas I'd been raised in a family where man and woman were equal partners in the marriage. It started really turning to custard when I had Susanna because I came home from hospital. We lived had a little tiny house in Green Eyes and found a perfume lid under the couch. And it was not my perfume. Two years later... We were going to go back to Italy on the Put the Marriage Together Again holiday. I didn't want to go back um, as early as we did. We went back in February. I didn't want to go back until April or May. When it was warmer, I said, I don't want to take the kids into the end of a Milanese winter because it's really quite bitter. I said to my husband, I don't want to go until May. I feel there's something bad is going to happen. And he said, don't be silly. Anyway, a lot earlier, actually, while she was still an infant and in a pram, when she was only a few months old, and it was one of those big old prams with great big wheels and a metal carriage that was painted white and it had a green hood that folded down. On this occasion, the hood was folded down and Susanna was lying in fast asleep on her back. And just for a moment, for a flash of a moment, I saw a dead body in a coffin. Now, they thought that's a morbid thing to think. I shouldn't think things like that. And then when we packed up to go, as we're going to be in Italy for a couple of months, I just made all the beds, but her cot, I stripped off the blankets and just left a sheet on it. And I walked back into the bedroom and I looked at the cot and the sheet looked as though it was over a dead body, once again, over the body of a child. And I was absolutely mortified, ripped it back, and it was just her teddy underneath. That's strange. Why would I put the sheet over the teddy? Why didn't I notice that? Once again, a premonition that something bad was going to happen. And I felt we shouldn't go before May. We shouldn't go before May. And um, anyway, we went. Susanna was a real character, on the plane going over, just turned two, as soon as she was released from her seatbelt, she was up and down the aisles talking to everybody, um, sitting on their laps, drinking their champagne. Uh, she was super friendly with everybody. She had personality plus. She was um, a real character. 
Back in Italy, it was great to see the family again. One day early in April, Mimo's brother Gregorio took Mimo, Liz and the kids for an outing to the local fields. The fields in Italy are not like fields in New Zealand. There are no fences with um, long grass which becomes hay which gets cut for the animals and you can just wander through them. And as it gets dry, it turns gold and that's when it's ready to be cut and then you get poppies and dog daisies and um, blue uh, cornflowers as well growing in it so it's very pretty. The kids played in the field, Dave chased a ball with his dad for a little while and Zanny picked flowers. And one very memorable thing she did was that she brought me some and the flowers that she brought me were forget-me-nots, wild ones. A, a bunch of blue forget-me-nots that she'd found growing just there. And here, Mummy. And then she went down. I could see her head bobbing in the long grass. And um, I wasn't particularly concerned about snakes or anything in the grass. There are snakes in the grass there, but um, they're grass snakes. They're not harmful. Anyway, she toddled off about 50 metres away. And um, time came to go... I could see where she was, couldn't see what she was doing. And um, I said, come on, Zanny, we're going, going home now. And she put her head up, she looked back down at whatever she was doing. And I said, Davy, go get Zanny. So he went down to get her. Mommy, she won't come. She was so engrossed in whatever she was doing. And so I went to see what she was doing. She was playing with a whole lot of rubbish that somebody had dumped in the middle of the field. There was a dirty old mattress, there was a whole lot of other rubbish there, and she was playing with it. I had no idea it was there, you couldn't see it in the long grass. Um, so I grabbed her, took her back to the car, and then I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. She said, Mommy, I'm hungry, and there's an open packet of biscuits on the back shelf of the car and Gregorio said oh they can have some of the biscuits and I said oh it's nearly lunch time they haven't washed their hands I'll go on you know just give her she's hungry and I thought well you eat a pound of dirt a year anyway they say so I let each of the kids have a biscuit and she had been playing with all this rubbish she's a child she could have put her hands near her mouth anyway before washing them but by that night, she was sick. She was vomiting. By the next morning, she was vomiting and had diarrhoea as well. Um, so we called a doctor in. It was actually a paediatrician um, who said, uh, I think she's got some kind of um, tummy bug. Um, give her an injection twice a day. If she's not better tomorrow, see another doctor. I'm going on holiday. The next day, she was still sick. She was worse, and she was actually getting very big black um, sunken pits under her eyes. She was seriously dehydrated. So we took her to another doctor, waited in the waiting room for the doctor, finally saw the doctor. doctor said, take her straight to hospital. Took her to hospital. No GP on duty, just two interns who were watching a football game. And they finally paid attention to her, um, said, oh, she needs to be on a drip. Couldn't find a vein 
to put it in because all her veins had collapsed. The only one they could find was on her forehead. And they put a drip and a needle in there and put her in a little bed in a room full of children and told me to sit on the bed next to her and said, you stay here and watch her if, if you need us to ring the bell. And they went back to watch their football. And so I was left alone with my very seriously ill child. And for the first time, I thought, she might not come out. She might not make it. And so I started praying. I started praying really, really seriously. Please, please let her live. Please, please let her live. Don't let her die. And uh, she finally went to sleep. And I had already had a night of, of staying awake with her all night. So I'd had a day and a night of being awake already. And I was absolutely exhausted. And I finally fell asleep on the bed next to her. And I woke up to hear her screaming. She was screaming and screaming as she was having convulsions. And the drip had pulled out with all the thrashing. I pushed the buzzer, they came running. They took her away in an oxygen tent. They took her into intensive care and came back and said to me, look, it's possible that she has suffered a lesion of the brain, which means if she survives, she will never be normal again. Because she had been so so smart, so bright, so bubbly, I couldn't stand the thought of her being um, so severely handicapped that she would have been pretty much a vegetable. So I was praying, let her live mind and body, please let her live mind and body. And I stayed um, in the chapel for hours until the rest of the family came in. And they came out at 8 o'clock in the morning. Very sorry. There was nothing more we could do. She's gone. I never saw her again. My heart felt as though it was enshrouded in this huge block of ice. I felt really, really cold. The ache in my chest was unbearable. And I felt totally numb. I thought, this is, this is a bad dream. I've got to wake up out of this. I can remember leaving the hospital at that point, uh, being driven back to the apartment, looking at the blue sky and the nice green trees and hearing the birds sing and thinking, how can they keep on singing? Don't they know? Don't they know what just happened? I got home to find that my precious Dave, who was five, was vomiting with the same thing that had just killed his sister. He got whipped off to hospital and he was given a 50-50 chance of living or dying. <laughs> and they all went to hospital with him and left me alone in the apartment. 
I was completely alone. That's not what you do with somebody who's just lost a child. You don't leave them by themselves. And then there was a knock on the door. It was one of the students Liz had taught English to when she was still living in Nerviano. He had heard what had happened and he said, what can I do for you? And I said to him, just stay with me. Please just stay with me. I need to sleep. I seriously need to sleep. I just need somebody to be with me. So he said, go, go lie down on the bed. So I went and lay down on the bed and he came in and pulled the blinds down and he sat on a chair and he held my hand and he held my hand and he kissed my hand and he said, I'm so, so sorry. And I slept for two hours when I woke up. That young guy was still there holding my hand. Two hours he sat in the dark with me. After that, we had a stream of visitors coming. The person who was the most comfort to me was a friend who came and sat beside me and said nothing, just hugged me. All she said was, I know the pain of losing somebody this precious. She said, my little sister died and I can remember it. And she just said nothing more. She just put her arm around me and her head on my shoulder and just hugged me. My sisters-in-law were full of questions. What clothes did I want Susanna to wear? What did I want the coffin to be like? The funeral was going to be the next day, really quick. That's the way they do things. It was going to be done quickly. And that meant that my mother and father couldn't come from New Zealand. I looked through all her clothes and I thought, no, not this, not that. In the end, they chose the coffin. I chose the dress, a brand new nighty for her to be buried in. They said to me, aren't you going to come and dress the body? Wash and dress the body yourself? And I said, no, I couldn't possibly do that. If I see her dead, I will remember her that way for the rest of my life. I have to remember her living. I gave them the dress and I gave them a lock of my hair in a little box and I gave them her favourite toy bunny and I said, um, please put the bunny in one of her hands and put the little box with my hair in it in the other hand so a part of me will remain forever with her. And I said, bring me a lock of her hair and I will keep it forever. So they did. And the next day was the funeral and I was still in this incredible state of shock, absolutely freezing, trembling. And Dave, of course, critically ill in hospital. I'd been to visit him in the meantime, but he was pretty sick. It was gastroenteritis. I knew what a, a funeral would be like in Italy because I'd been to quite a few. They start off, if it's an apartment block, in the foyer of the building with a little casket on a platform and plaster angels stuck on the walls and candles and flowers and great big huge wreaths and everybody gathered. The entire village is going to turn out, even if they don't know you. They'll be there to see what happened, who died. And they have a service in the foyer of the building. Then you walk behind a hearse to the church and you have a mass at the church. You walk behind the hearse to the cemetery and they have a committal service there. 
I had my husband, Mimo, beside me on one side and a friend on the other. And halfway down the stairs, I stopped. And I said, go on without me, please. I need to be by myself. I just need to be alone, just for a moment. Go on without me. So they did. And I sat down on a cold, drafty staircase. And I just said a really simple prayer. I said, help me now, because I can't do this without you. Immediately, something like a hot wind hit me in the front, right in the solar plexus. The kind of heat you get if you drink a good brandy straight. That warmth that hits you in in the middle and spreads through your body. An overwhelming peace. I stood up. I walked down the stairs. I couldn't feel the stairs. And I went through that day with this sensation of being carried and this incredible feeling of deep peace and and tranquility and and it was okay. After the funeral, Liz went straight to David's bedside, where he was still fighting for his life. I was hugely concerned that I was going to lose Dave too. He had the same thing that had just killed his sister. He was critically ill for about three or four days and Mimo and I took turns along with the sisters at staying at Dave's bedside all the time. All my hells had come at once and I just said, please don't take him too, please, please don't take him too. His temperature went down to normal and they said, he's out of the woods, he's going to, he's going to make it. That was the greatest joy, the greatest joy. Yeah, to know that he would live gave me some light in the darkness. Liz, Mimo and David stayed on in Italy for a few more weeks. She visited Susanna's grave every day. I talked to her. Mostly I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry that I couldn't save you from this. Sorry that I let you go and touch that rubbish. Sorry that I let you eat the cookie. Sorry that I didn't take you to hospital the first day. A lot of guilt uh, that I had been a bad mother, uh, hadn't done the right things fast enough. I went every single day. And then it was time to return home to New Zealand. It was my last day to visit her and, and, and I didn't know when I would ever, ever come back. or if I would ever come back. I was pretty sure by that stage that the marriage was on the rocks. It was the hardest thing in the world to know that I was going to visit my daughter's grave for possibly the last time ever. I went back on my own for a last visit. As I came in, I saw kneeling beside my daughter's grave was this um, young girl, and I didn't know her, a girl I'd never seen before. She was putting... Lily of the Valley in a jam jar on my daughter's grave. And I said, hello, who are you? And she said, I'm Nadia. I said, this is my daughter's grave. How come you're putting flowers on it? And she said, oh, the children of the village um, every springtime go and gather flowers, wildflowers, and the idea is that you take them to the grave of a child that you don't know. And so she said, I chose this one. And I said, well, that's my daughter. And I talked to this girl. 
a little bit. She, her name was Nadia. And um, she had short brown hair and uh, quite a serious face with big eyes. And I said to her, Nadia, um, would you do me a favor? And she said, yes, what is it? And I said, I'm going back to New Zealand now and I don't know if I will ever be able to come back. Would you bring her wildflowers, not bought ones, just like you have today, every now and then come and visit her for me and just bring her flowers from the fields and give her a kiss from her mama. Nadia looked at me with big dark eyes and said, yes, I will, I promise. And at this point, her mother intervenes. I hadn't even noticed her mama standing behind me uh, saying, Nadia, do you realize if you make a promise like this, you're going to have to keep it? And Nadia said, yes, I will. So I said goodbye to Susanna. I felt that I was leaving a part of me behind. Really, really hard. How can you do that? And I said that I loved her. That I'd see her in heaven. Liz flew home. Her marriage to Mimo ended soon after. She went on to train as a teacher and grieved for Susanna for years. Eventually she healed enough to fall in love again. She remarried and had two more sons. Then, 12 years after she got on that plane, having to leave her two-year-old daughter behind. I went to the letterbox one day and there was this letter from Italy. I was quite used to getting letters from Italy because I was still in contact with my sisters-in-law. But this one was different handwriting. I thought, who is this? And I thought, Nadia. Nadia? Nadia! And then it just clicked. Oh my goodness, it's Nadia. And I ripped it open, rushed inside and ripped it open and read it. And she had just got married. And um, she would not have had an address for me, except for the fact that she had put her wedding bouquet on my daughter's grave saying I'll take it to her because she will never have one of her own. And my sisters-in-law had seen flowers and candles that they hadn't put there before, but that could have been any of my friends. I have got friends in Nerviano. But a wedding bouquet, they knew that none of my friends that they knew about had just got married. So what was a wedding bouquet doing on Zanny's grave? So they asked around, and Nerviano is a pretty small town, they found out who had just got married. And... Um, went and visited and said, excuse me, did you put your wedding bouquet on our niece's grave? They found out, yes, she had and why she had. All that time she had been taking flowers faithfully to Susanna. First of all, just wildflowers. And then eventually as she got older, bought flowers. They said, well, Lisa needs to know about that. And they gave her my address. And that's how come she wrote to me. And that was a huge surprise. And... I cried because I had actually pretty much forgotten that I'd ever even spoken to her. It's now been 40 years, 40 years since Nadia made that promise to a heartbroken woman who was a complete stranger. And from that first letter, they've been friends. She has continued to keep that promise. She still visits my daughter's grave, still takes her flowers. Um... And when she had her first daughter named her after my Susanna, I said to her, you are just such an amazing person. You are the most, one of the most special people I ever know and you will always be precious to me like a sister because of what you've done. What kind of 
11-year-old girl makes a promise and keeps it for all those years. I just couldn't believe that anybody would do that for a stranger. A complete stranger making a promise to a complete stranger and keeping it. It made me realise what an amazing person she is. With a a real heart, um, a loving heart. She didn't know me from a bar of soap. She really didn't. Uh, she'd never met me before. She never saw me again. And yet she kept a promise that she made as a child. After the trauma of Susanna's death, Liz went on putting one foot in front of the other and life eventually became bearable. She's still happily married to her second husband, Bevan. Her three sons, David, Ben and Sam, are now adults of course, and she also has grandchildren. Both Nadia and her daughter Susanna have been to New Zealand to visit, and Liz and her family have been back to Italy to see them and of course to visit little Susanna's grave. Liz is a remarkable storyteller and I am so grateful that she agreed to share her amazing story with the lip. She certainly painted a picture in my mind that I will never forget. You can see photographs to go with her story on the lippodcast.kiwi. Now, before I wrap up this episode, I want to thank a few more people for their support of this podcast. There are so many folk to salute, and I can't do it all at once. So this month, I'm shouting out to everyone who has left a review on our Facebook page so far. Here's a big thank you to Janine Guerra, Julie Miles, Dean Latham, Therese McCarthy, Jackie McMillan, David Thompson, Jeannie Stewart, Barb Kagram, Tom Broughton, and Kylie Bailey. Thanks, guys. I so appreciate it. There will be more shout-outs next month, and don't forget, we release an extraordinary true tale every month, and you can find every single episode of The Lip on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi, and also on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. See you next month. Tell me how